From the KGOU studios, I'm Suzette Gorlatt, the Dean of the University of Oklahoma's College of International Studies. Welcome to Worldviews. Around the world, indigenous languages are going extinct. Linguist Marcia Haig says preserving them means preserving diverse ways of thinking about the world around us. Often the only thing that will be left in a language is that people remember how to pray, but they don't know what the words mean. They just know that the words are imbued with a certain spirit. We'll hear from Marcia Haig on today's show. But first, Rebecca Cruz and I discuss the recent uprisings in Nicaragua and French President Macron's state visit to the White House. That kind of shows a shift in who the United States leadership is dealing with. France, suddenly, for the first time in quite some while, they are the main partner in Europe or seem to be under this administration. That's all coming up after the latest news from NPR. This is Worldviews. I'm Suzette Gorlott. Rebecca Cruz, we're going to talk about a couple of issues from this week in Central America, Nicaragua. We've seen an uprising this week. Uh, People hit the streets because of some pension reforms that were set forth by the government, uh, Daniel Ortega, as president. And the response, of course, was quite uh, violent. Over two dozen people have been killed, including some journalists. But uh, so, so the president uh, recalled those uh, reforms and then uh, the protests continued and kind of spread about various other issues beyond the pension issue, fraud, corruption. So can you tell us a little bit about what's happening in Nicaragua? Well, as so often happens, many of these protests around the world really originate with students. And this was the case here. Uh, kind of odd that the students were protesting pensions, uh, but it was really a continuation, as you said, of, of other issues. They had been protesting a fire, a very large fire that the government hadn't put out. And there were many, many other issues. What's so interesting here is that it was the students in large part that brought Ortega to power 40 years ago and have been the, the base of his support for the last 40 years. We, of course, remember him uh, for his own coup in the 1970s and then the Iran-Contra debacle and all those sorts of things. Even when he was out of power, he was holding kind of the puppet strings and returned to power officially in 2007. Him and, interestingly enough, his wife have taken over as president and vice president and control many, many branches there. Uh, but these are there's a lot of things going on here and he's losing a large base of support among students and, and among people that have voted for him for years. Well, you mentioned students. Students are actually up rising in many places around the world, France right now over entry to college, uh, testing, that sort of thing. But it's interesting to look at the history of these types of protests and uprisings in the sense that they start kind of on one issue, but they really are about other underlying issues, broader issues. But it's a, it's a global thing we see happening. Yeah, it's almost that spark that that starts everything. It can be something uh, like in in the Arab Spring with Indonesia, the vendors um, and the the man that set himself on fire there. It it often speaks to much larger issues. And and once people move into that political space that has been created or that open space that has uh, been created, it really doesn't matter. The momentum has been created. So with Ortega now changing some of his policies, it it may not matter because things are moving in a certain direction. And this may be the end of his, uh, his dynasty. Well, speaking of France, since I I mentioned the the French students, let's talk about the president of France, uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron, who visited uh, the United States this week, had a state dinner, big elaborate function, lots of of kind of looking looking very much like this charm offensive, a bit of a bromance going on is how it's been reported, the two getting along very well, President Trump and President Macron. But then he went to Congress and he he went onto the floor and, and was quite critical of 
the United States and where it was headed didn't mention Trump, but referred to isolationism and nationalism and uh, the abandonment of freedom and all kinds of things. So, I mean, how do we reconcile these two things? I'm not sure that we do, although his interactions with the president, they're one of the most positive uh, relationships that we've seen this president have. And it's interesting with a European counterpart who uh, is facing some of his own obstacles at home. So it is very possible that the, the image that he gives to the press with the president is going to be different than the speech that he's given to Congress, which may, in fact, be a speech that he's given to his uh, people back home, uh, trying to message to them that he is standing up for them, uh, specifically talking about the Paris Climate Accords and talking about the Iran deal. It's also interesting to note that Angela Merkel is also coming this week, and the reception that she's receiving is much, much less. Uh, But that kind of shows a shift in who the United States leadership is dealing with. France, suddenly, for the first time in in quite some while, they are the main partner in Europe, or seem to be under this administration, so perhaps a shift there. Which is a very interesting development, (laughs) because this has not been the case for so long. In fact, France and the United States have always kind of been at loggerheads, and Germany was much much closer. And so here we have Merkel, who of course does not have the closest relationship with Trump. But it is also interesting to see what kind of reception she's not getting, the same type of reception that Macron got. She also was uh, very close with Obama. They seem to, to speak the same language in maybe many regards. So there could be a lot of things going on there. But yes, it's France is is the new relationship for the United States and Europe. And, and Germany is playing a different role. Much of the rest of, of Europe actually playing a different role. Well, Macron said some very important things about the United States and the future of its leadership and the way in which uh, it you know supports the entire global system that it helped create, United States helped create. And so, it must step up and preserve. Exactly. I think that was his point. All right, Rebecca, we're out of time. Thanks so much, as always. Thank you. We want to hear your thoughts about today's discussion. Leave your comments and questions in the Worldviews section of KGOU.org. Or follow us on Twitter, at WorldviewsKGOU, and I'm at Suzette Corlott. Next, we'll talk with linguist and professor Marcia Haig about her quest to preserve endangered languages, including Native American languages spoken here in Oklahoma, like Cherokee and Choctaw. I'm Suzette Gorlott, and you're listening to Worldviews. This is Worldviews. I'm Suzette Gorlott, the Dean of the College of International Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Linguists generally agree that almost half of the world's nearly 7,000 languages will be extinct within the next century, as dominant languages take over and indigenous languages die with their last remaining speakers. Marcia Haig is a descriptive linguist and professor at the University of Oklahoma who says saving a language involves delving into the complex nature of society and human interactions. Marcia Haig, welcome to Worldviews. Thank you for inviting me. Your long-standing work has been in the area of language preservation. You're a linguist. Let's uh, first start with that, uh, focusing on Native American languages. But I, I particularly want to focus on language preservation and language revitalization because it's an issue, This, this uh, the losing of language, the, um, the, the language extinction, if you will, the fact that we're losing languages to our dominant languages, mm-hmm. English, Spanish, Portuguese, French, Russian, Hindi, Chinese primarily. Mm-hmm. So um, let's talk about this. So how, what is it exactly that, that you do as a descriptive linguist in terms of focusing on language preservation? And, and what is it that we're going to lose if we don't preserve languages? Well, I when I say I do descriptive linguistics, I work on languages that are endangered. And certainly every Native American language in this country, even the ones we think of as being safe, like Navajo, 
are desperately endangered. So my work has been about finding the last of the speakers, sitting down with them, learning how the language works, describing it, analyzing it, and then making materials so that other people can learn. Now, I'm not naive about this. I, I perfectly understand that we are not going to have a few community language classes and we're just going to get these languages back from the bottom because language transmission is far more complicated than that. So I might just say, first of all, sort of how we lost them and why it's so hard to get them back, why we can't just, as I said, have our little community class and then we'll, we'll raise up a new generation of speakers. Well, first of all, the ways that we lose language all over the world, and certainly North America is probably the very best example, we lose languages through, sh through conquest. Somebody comes in with an army and a navy and conquers a people. And this has happened from when the Indo-Europeans moved into Europe 3,000 years ago and took over all of the people who lived in Europe such that we've only got a couple of families like the Hungarians, Finnish, the Basques are the only people remaining of whoever was in Europe before. All the rest of those languages are Indo-European because the conquerors were able to um, politically and, and especially economically dominate the conquered people. So that's going to tell us a lot right there about why small languages, the languages of people without political power, the people without economic power, or just the people who are few in number are always going to be at risk of being taken over by um, dominant big econ economies and big political systems. So point anywhere in the world and we can show you um, a, a group that is hanging on. Um, so, so look at North America. It doesn't take very much imagination to see what happened with the people of North America who were overwhelmed primarily with technology and then with in, uh, European diseases such that they, they just weren't going to be able to, to sustain them, them themselves against those powers. Um, so there's wiping out of a people is one way we're going to lose a language. But there are subtler ways. And the subtle ways that we have seen in the last, I would say, 100 years have been economic. So let's take a look at... Um, a situation where you're a small tribe, perhaps in Oklahoma, and you've been had your children taken from you and sent to boarding school for their own good. And also because what was the thing that if we, we can like take the, the native out of the man, we're going to save the man by getting the Indian out of him. That, that 19th century uh, belief. So you send them to boarding schools and you punish the children for speaking their native language. Well, that's a good way to do it. So if the children are, are punished for speaking their language, they learn to speak English, and unless they are able to reconnect with their birth families, they're going to, to lose um, their, their fluency. But let's say that the kid, you know, who is, you know, punished and still loves the family, still loves um, his or her language, now needs to get a job. And the way you get a job in this economy is you have to be an English speaker.
another thing um, that is intimately connected with that in the boarding school is that when it's time to get married, you marry a person who is a speaker of a language in another tribe, but neither of you speaks the other's language, and English becomes the lingua franca of the home. This happens again and again where you have parents who are speakers, but neither none of the children speaks either of the languages. Then there was the, the belief for a time that if we learned a second language while we were learning English, our English would be messed up. And so we needed to pick the language of opportunity over the native language. And so children would grow up being English speakers so that they could survive in the economy. And that is the situation of the adults now. And by that, I mean probably all the way up until, you know, age 80. We have that only the people who are much older than that had the experience of maybe living in a family where parents were monolingual and encouraged uh, the, uh, the learning of, of the home language. So um, people who hear the language, they understand some of the language, they may have kept the language for ceremonial purposes, but speaking it in a in, in daily speech communities, that's been gone for a long time now, I'm sorry to tell you. You're listening to my conversation with Marcia Haig about the loss of indigenous languages in North America and worldwide. Coming up, we'll discuss what's really at stake when a language disappears forever. I'm Suzette Gorlatt, and you're listening to Worldviews. This is Worldviews. I'm Suzette Gorlatt, the Dean of the College of International Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Today we hear from University of Oklahoma professor Marcia Haig, who documents and works to preserve indigenous languages like Choctaw and Cherokee. So you've outlined for us the several ways in which we're losing languages and that they're endangered. So obviously there, there are depending on how you measure what a language what qualifies as a language mm-hmm. versus a dialect or whatever mm-hmm. we have somewhere between 5 and 9000 mm-hmm. i believe languages that are spoken and that's right. the key word is that they're spoken they're mm-hmm. not written so we've got many many languages that there's no written record of them so mm-hmm. we we can't easily preserve them we have obviously conquest uh, and and colonial practices and and powerful people that mm-hmm. impose their languages mm-hmm. on others and then we have e- the economic integration issue and the fact that if you want to engage and get a job, make a living like you're suggesting, you're going to have to speak a dominant language. Mm -hmm. And I I said dominant in air quotes here on the radio. Um, So that being said, we're losing, like you said, languages are endangered, but it's not just the language. We're losing history. We're losing culture. We're Mm -hmm. using losing way of life. Mm -hmm. We're, We're losing, even when you're able to maybe go back and as you do, preserve, uh, a language by describing and analyzing it so that other people can learn it, you're still losing perhaps key, you know, cultural tidbits that come through the way in which it was spoken before, as yes. opposed to new ways of learning it or new, yes. newer ways of, of, of uh, implementing a language. So, I mean, it's beyond, it's not just the language, there's a broader right. range of things that are that are lost here. So here are some examples of the things that we lose when we lose a language. First of all, all of that specialized vocabulary. Let's think again of American Indian people who live in 
an ecosystem with the thousands of plants and the thousands of species of animal, and all of those have a native name. And when we lose the words for them, we can't identify them anymore in our own language. We also lose the, the medicinal things that we made with those plants. We don't know how to use them to heal ourselves anymore. We don't know how to make things anymore that we used to make because we don't have the instruction from elders about what to actually do with these plants or constructing certain kinds of boats or, or dwellings because we're not able to talk about them the way we talked about them before. We lose ceremonial language. We lose the way we used to pray. And actually, that often is the only thing that will be left in a language is that people remember how to pray, but they don't know what the words mean. They just know that the words are imbued with a certain spirit. So you'll, um, if you have the language, then you can talk to God in, in the right way. And Native people will often tell you that, well, I, I can't talk to God because God understands the other language and not, not the thing that I'm doing now. We lose um, intellectual, phil philosophical ways of being in the world, the way the world is put together. How, what kind of cosmologies did we have before? How did we treat each other? What is the natural way that humans walk on the earth and treat each other? And we were able to, to talk about them um, in sophisticated ways rather than going through the filter of um, Western law. We had kinship terms. We identified each other in, in ways that had to do with um, generations and maybe the, the sex of the person. And was that a maternal or paternal relation? When we got the English system, all of a sudden we're in nuclear families with somebody where the father is running everything and the name, and, and, and it's his name now where we don't, we can't name ourselves the way we used to name ourselves. So enormous cultural losses in those ways. So you mentioned earlier Navajo, that is, is one of the, the languages that at least being somewhat revitalized and is, is growing. I mean, the others, maybe we could point to the Czech language, some would suggest Gaelic, Hebrew. Uh, languages that have kind of been preserved and, and right. are revitalized in some way. But at the end of the day, I mean, you're talking about language, endangered languages, like we would talk about maybe endangered species and the, the yes. need to, to preserve biodiversity. I mean, it, we're talking about lingo diversity, right? And exactly. I mean, I have no idea if that's a word, but ling a, we'll lingo, make one up. Yeah, li that, that, that we're actually talking about preser preserving lingo diversity. But how, how Marcia, how do we make the case, right, given these these dominant languages and, and kind of the, the the economic impact that we've been talking about, how do we preserve or make the case to preserve mm -hmm. lingo diversity? I'm people, just going to make that people, word. People, yeah, I like it. <laughs> people will even say, what do we need all these languages for? They just, uh, you know, if they can't survive them, they need to be wiped out and we would all be better if we just spoke one language. And when people have thrown that in my face, um, one of the things that I've said to them is, okay, 
let's take the most dominant language on earth. Let's all start speaking Mandarin Chinese. How's that going to work for us? Because remember, the people who want to eliminate language always think that you're going to be speaking their language, don't they? But when we say, all right, we're going to be、um, doing Mandarin, we're starting next week. All right. First of all, all of us who are over the age of fifteen, we're just not going to really be able to learn that very well. Some of us will be more fluent than others. Really, old people are never going to get to be able to speak Mandarin. All right. And then, what about the wonderful things that? Let's just talk about English. No more English literature, because. We have we will lose everything from Shakespeare to Dr. Seuss because Chinese does not have meter. They do something else. So all of the iambic pentameter, and even every who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot. Even that kind of rhyming metric. Speech is gone because we cannot make it anymore because of of the way the language is put together. So, as a linguist, I go back to all right. We don't need names of birds and and plants, but the actual cognitive stuff that is in other languages teaches us about how the mind works. So, if you look at the structure of Native American languages, they are so different. From European languages, that you that your mind is boggled, and you begin to look at they're doing categories this way. They are looking at time and space this way. They are looking at relations of agents and affected things this way. That not only do we not do, we didn't imagine that human beings could do them that way. So by preserving the languages, even if we don't have a lot. Of speakers, the、um, cognitive models that are are caught up in those languages are irreplaceable as a matter of science. Thank you so much, Marcia, for being here today. Such a fascinating issue. Thank you very much. You've been listening to my conversation with linguistics professor Marcia Haig about how languages go extinct and what we lose when we lose a language. Worldviews is produced in partnership between KGOU and the College of International Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Katie Holland prepares our research, and Caroline Halter edited this interview and produced the show. For Rebecca Cruz, I'm Suzette Berlatt.